Hello and welcome to the Josias podcast. Merry Christmas to all our listeners. This is Pater Edmund over in Austria. Joel and Elliot uh, are off doing Joel and Elliot things today. Uh, but I have a guest here, uh, Gabriel. Gabriel is, is one of the the first contributors to the Josias, actually, uh, though he's also been a sharp critic of uh, some of uh, his fellow uh, contributors as is fitting uh how are you gabriel i'm doing well i'm doing well i've been up for a little while but i am uh you know keeping keeping at it actually excited to talk about something that uh is interesting me for a long time which is you'll guess we'll get into which is leo strauss but indeed so we'll get into strauss uh in a moment but first let's talk a little bit about the music um if you didn't know who this music was by what what century would you guess it was in I would probably put it. I probably would put it in the 18th or 9th, late 18th, early 19th century, somewhere in that range. Interesting. This is. It was actually composed in 1994 um, by an American composer, Morton Lauritsen. I think it's it's uh, beautiful. The, I chose it mainly because it's Christmas and this is Omanium Mysterium, nice Christmas uh, motet, but. Um, uh, the connection sort of to our theme for today, which is Leo Strauss, did uh, occur to me. Namely that there's an opinion among some music uh, critics or uh, theorists of music that after atonal music comes along, tonal music is sort of uh, finished. And if you compose tonal music after atonal music has already happened, then it's... Uh, it's kitsch or it's you know it's fake it's it doesn't have the innocence of uh, of real tonal music that was composed before Schoenbeck um which i think is false but it it's typical of this kind of historicist mindset uh in our age which uh Strauss was was very much concerned uh with addressing so maybe uh you can tell us a little bit who, who Strauss is and, and why we should be interested in him. Well, that's a good question. So Leo Strauss was a German uh, Jew who was born, I believe it was in 1899 or 1900, and he came of age at a time in Germany where um, you had a lot of, how should I put it, a lot of upheavals in, in German thought and German thinking, uh, most specifically you had the rise of uh, existentialism in Heidegger, and Strauss was a student of Heidegger, along with you know a very large series of other uh, individuals who would have a tremendous impact on 20th century thought, Gadamer, for instance. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Strauss, um, again, I, I want to probably preface all of this with saying that there are mammoth disputes in the literature over know who is Leo Strauss and what is Strauss's true meaning and what yes. was his true teachings so anything I say is a little bit provisional and I'm sure there's a Straussian out there who will contest everything I'm saying and say I have it absolutely incorrect but regardless uh, Strauss came of age during this time in Germany and of course being a Jew with the rise of Nazism uh, found himself uh, forced to flee first to France and then to England and during that time he began uh, a series of books probably starting with philosophy um, Philosophy and Law, which was his first book on Maimonides, um, he, he started this sort of push to get past these impasses in modern thought, specifically the, the problems raised by historicism. And he had hoped to, uh, somewhat paradoxically, 
by the use of history or historical research to get back behind historicism and the assumptions of historicism and look at the world and look at philosophy through the lens of pre-modern philosophers, Maimonides being one of them, but of course uh, Strauss is probably most widely associated with Plato and you know Strauss's quote-unquote rediscovery of Plato and right. you know, trying to get back to the meaning of what did Plato really say, what did Maimonides really say, what did Aristotle say, and try to uh, recover these thinkers out from underneath the sort of historical assumptions that had dominated uh, you know, their study in the preceding centuries. Yeah, indeed. And um, part, of, part of what we try to do at the Josias is, uh, is to recover the, the heritage of classical philosophy as well as of uh, the theological tradition of the church and to critique uh, modern philosophies, particularly modern political philosophy insofar as it diverges from that tradition. Um, and Strauss is, is one of the one of the recent authors who really offers a, a compelling case for a, a kind of return to the insight of the ancients. We've been we've been uh, looking at a few texts. Uh, we had the the Josiah's podcast episode on Macintyre, who's another uh, one who tries to do something somewhat similar. Um, and maybe a bit later on, we'll get into the differences between Macintyre and Strauss. You did a blog post uh, responding to our, our McIntyre episode where you talked about that a bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm hoping to get to that uh, eventually. Uh, but maybe let's begin by uh, looking at some of Strauss's key theses. And we'll, let's look particularly at his book, Natural Right and History, which is one that... Uh, has been particularly influential, especially on his Catholic readers. Strauss is by no means most Straussians are Catholics, <laughs> but there are some Catholic Straussians. Uh, and Natural Right in History was kind of the, the book that uh, was most read among, among Catholics uh, and was most influential, the critique there that he gives of uh, modern philosophy and the defense of uh, classical philosophies insight into natural right. Um, so maybe we can just start by saying, what does he mean by natural right? Well, that's also a contested question. So, I mean, for Strauss, he, he does later on in natural right in history get into a discussion of trying to um, contrast natural right with natural law. In other words, natural law is a sort of you know, fixed, fixed principles, you know, thou shall not kill, right? That's, that's um, obviously that's in uh, the Ten Commandments, but uh, that might be taken as a, a precept of nature. But for Strauss, natural right, and again, I, I say this with the provision that people have disagreements on this, but for Strauss, natural right was something broader, right? It was a, it was a way of un uncovering, you know, what was the right way of life by nature. And Strauss wanted to get away from the idea that it was uh, sort of strictly uh, synonymous with, with, with natural law teaching. And in fact, in Natural Right in History, he critiques um, Thomas Aquinas by saying that, you know, Aquinas's uh, natural law teaching, you know, arises out of a, um, 
how does he put it? It rises out of a misreading, or, or I should say, a conflation of Aristotle's thinking with uh, Christian tenets, you know, involving conscience. And Strauss was very strict on terminology, and he would say that you know the term natural law never truly appears in Aristotle, and therefore to impute to Aristotle the beginning of the natural law tradition would be um, a, a, a later historical imposition that you know we have to get beyond. And what Strauss was really concerned with, I think, at the end, is to really figure out. You know, what did these ancient thinkers really teach? Let's get beyond any sort of accretions, quote-unquote, that might have uh, uh, attached themselves to their thought or to the traditions surrounding their thought and, and really try to understand thinkers as they understood themselves. Yeah, there's, I mean, he sees uh, natural law, St. Thomas's natural law teaching as being in a way too, um, too determinate, not giving enough scope to prudence and to different situations and different political communities, which Aristotle would uh, have given room to. Um, it, but he, it seems like the word right that he uses, he, he plays a little bit on the, the wide uh, number of meanings that that word can have. In the, the English word right, as the German word recht, can be used to translate several different Latin words. So it can use... We talked in a previous episode about right as a translation of jus in Latin, and jus means in the first place the the object of justice, so what is due to another on account of justice. Um, and then it can, uh, by a second imposition, mean then a kind of uh, subjective power, um, modern right, uh, as Strauss will put it. But right can also be used to translate the Latin rectitudo, and that's the way Strauss begins to use it. Rectitudo means rightness. Um, recte is right in the sense of the adjective right, like a, a straight line. We would uh, used to be called a right line. Um, Richard Hooker, the the Anglican theologian, he says right uh, means what is right as opposed to wrong means what is the most direct way to uh the goal of human life. So that is a, an even wider sense than right in the sense of jus, right in the sense of, recti, of recte or rectitudo would mean just right as opposed to wrong. So natural right would just mean there are some things that are wrong not because of convention, not because some city has made a law against them, but because they are uh, intrinsically on account of the order of things wrong. And it's interesting, he begins, Strauss is very, uh, is always very careful about uh, the smallest details of his writings. And at the, the he puts two quotes um, as kind of uh, epigraphs to natural right and history. They're both from sacred scripture. And they're both scenes where it's very easy to see that there's something wrong that's wrong, not because it's against the law or against custom or anything, but that's just intrinsically wrong. So the first one is uh, the parable that Nathan uh, tells to King David about the man who, who steals the poor man's lamb and kills it for his guest. Um, and the second one is the bit about Ahab uh, trying to take the vineyard from, from Naboth. Um, and both of these cases, uh, I mean, the, 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 the genius of Nathan's 
comparable to David is that David himself then becomes indignant at this evil rich man who steals the poor man's one uh, one sheep that you know that he sleeps in his bed and which he treats like his own daughter or whatever and kills it and uh, this human nature in David you know sees that this is wrong this is not right and so this is the a kind of the broadest sense of right and that's it seems like what uh, what Strauss begins with right in that sense although then later on in the book he'll use the other sense as well right as the object of justice and then when he's talking about the modern uh, natural right theorists, um, in quotation marks, Locke and so on, then he'll be using the sense of right as a subjective power. Yes, absolutely. And that's actually one of the interesting things that gives rise to um, you know, the, the various interpretations or interpretive schools of Strauss, because uh, also in that book, um, I think it's in the introduction, he has the quotes from the Declaration of Independence and really... One might almost say that that gives rise to the entire school of uh, West Coast Straussianism in the sense yeah. that ultimately what Strauss is trying to do is vindicate, you know, the Declaration and vindicate, uh, you know, the American founding. And that really becomes Harry Jaffa's big project over in Claremont um, as far as trying to read Strauss through that lens. Whereas, of course, you'll find uh, other thinkers like the so-called East Coast Straussians like Alan Bloom, uh, for instance, who actually thinks that Strauss has no real deep love of America, that it's actually, uh, he's very critical of it, and very critical of modernity and critical of liberalism, and any sort of uh, appearance of a defense of liberalism is just that, an appearance, and not really what Strauss uh, believes or is actually advocating. Yeah. He, I mean, he definitely, to his students, he definitely tried to present um, the Platonic, uh, the Platonic, uh, defense of, of aristocracy against democracy in the strongest possible light. So he had all these, you know, enthusiastic American students at the University of Chicago. And uh, he would really bring out the, there's, the University of Chicago has brought out, uh, has actually put online a bunch of his lectures mm -hmm. from when he was there. And it's really fun to listen. I haven't listened to very many of them, but it's really fun to listen to some of them. There's one series that I have listened to all the way through on Plato's Mino. And there Strauss is, you know, really uh, going strong on the case for aristocracy against democracy. But again, it's it's unclear whether he's doing that just for pedagogical reasons so that these Americans can see the strongest objection to their regime and, and thereby be better able to uh, give the strongest possible defense of their regime, or whether he actually thinks aristocracy is better than democracy. Sure. That yeah, that comes up all the time in Strauss, and that even gets back to uh, Strauss's you know, critique of historicism and his, his you know his continual call to return to the ancients. There's of course some people who believe that Strauss never truly thought you could actually get back and think the way that Aristotle thought or Plato and so forth. But what Strauss wanted to do was, at a pedagogical level, inspire his students to not just, for example, you know there's there's the common the common wisdom of, you know, when Aristotle speaks of quote-unquote natural slaves, well, that's just Aristotle expressing his particular prejudice as an Athenian uh, at that particular point in time, whereas right. Strauss wanted his students to get back behind that and say, well, why does Aristotle say this? What's his reasoning? Is, is this really what Aristotle's teaching? Why is it? You know, and, and ask those questions and really uh, deepen themselves into tradition. And actually, in a way, 
it's kind of funny because at a certain level, a lot of people see Strauss as a, a critic of Heidegger and a critic of the existential historicism that comes out of Heidegger's thought, and yet, in many ways, Strauss is inspired by Heidegger insofar as Heidegger thought that you know you had to do a return, right? You had to get back behind modernity. You had to go. You had to go back to the ancients, and you had to read them, you know, in a way that was free from sort of the metaphysical assumptions that that developed later on and so forth and i think strauss does take that to heart it's just that i think he feels at some level that you know heidegger went off the rails uh, presumably and you had to in order to overcome heidegger in order to overcome the sort of existential historicism that heidegger ultimately concluded in you had to start thinking through philosophical problems from the perspective of the ancients or at least the pre-moderns yeah there's uh my my route into into Strauss was through uh, his friend uh, Jacob Klein or Jakob Klein as we call him over here, who uh, he was he studied with Strauss in Germany and then they both uh, ended up immigrating to the United States. And Jacob Klein became the dean at St. John's College um, in Annapolis, Maryland, great book school, which was in turn an influence on the place I went to college. Um, which we always talk about on the podcast, so I won't mention the name. But uh, <laughs> anyway, there's a there's a wonderful uh, introduction that Strauss gave to Klein. He was introducing him at a public lecture, and he talks about how how Heidegger had uh, had really tried to uproot all of Western philosophy and and sort of start over from scratch. But he said that Klein saw that uh, what Heidegger did as opening up a possibility of returning to uh, Plato and Aristotle. So, as it were, Heidegger was ripping up the roots in order to discard them. But uh, Klein would say, oh, "Oh, wait a minute! Now we can we can actually see the roots and you know understand what they mean and maybe begin again from them uh, and and return to their insights um, in a way which Heidegger wasn't." Uh, wasn't ready to do, um, but maybe maybe we can now go to uh, a more direct consideration of historicism. What does what does Strauss take historicism to be, and why is why is he against it? Well, that's also an interesting question. So, actually, in preparing for our discussion, I went um, and picked up a book called "Toward Natural Right and History." It was published, I think, about a year ago, and it collects together a number of lectures and unpublished essays that Strauss had written in the 1930s and 1940s, kind of in um, anticipation of giving the Walgreen Lectures. And the Walgreen Lectures, he gave those in 1949, and they became the basis of the book. But it's interesting to go look at Strauss's earlier writings on historicism, because sometimes there you get a clearer picture of what Strauss is after, what Strauss is up to, because even a number of his sympathetic readers have pointed out is that as Strauss would refine his thinking, and he would write chapters or write articles and then rewrite them and so forth, um, his ideas became more and more compact and it became more and more difficult for people who weren't familiar with his larger corpus or you know, had not had him as a, a teacher at the University of Chicago mm -hmm. uh, to understand it. But So for Strauss, I mean, he really sees the advent of historicism um, in the Enlightenment and the emerging idea that different periods or epochs of human history have their own special character and their own special quality and that they're worth studying um, for, for that reason. And Strauss... You know, then sees the movement of you know. So, I should preface this by saying that you know Strauss sees there, there's a development in historicism. It's not that historicism is just one thing that appears at one point in time and it's and it's static. 
because that sort of initial historicism with Strauss kind of, um, and I shouldn't say kind of, but definitely um, equates with the historical critical school of scholarship, which of course was very, uh, very big in Germany, beginning in the 18th century and going into the 19th yeah. century. Um, he doesn't necessarily see a problem with it, but he, he definitely sees a big rupture occurring when Nietzsche finally gets to this point. And, and he writes, and, and for Strauss, Nietzsche becomes sort of the first big critic of this first form of historicism. In other words, that by constantly looking to the past, by constantly sort of obsessing over different epochs and different periods of time, uh, there's a tendency towards romanticization. And there's also a tendency to kind of um, stall, out, stall out in a way. In other words, to not think beyond our current times, to not really um, uh, progress, you know, philosophically or intellectually because we're so enamored by the past that we that we have a difficulty handling the present or looking towards the future. And after Nietzsche, for Strauss, he really sees historicism transforming into um, less of a romantic looking to the past and more of a dogmatic uh, acceptance that, you know, all forms of human thought, you know, all cultures and customs and so forth are historically contingent and that all thought is probably just a great becoming. In other words, um, you know, the Athenians, as opposed to the Romans, as opposed to, you know, modern Germans, they all have their own thoughts, their ways of thinking, their own conventions, but you can't judge one against the other, and they're just, you know, historical accidents, effectively, and they don't have any uh, timeless relevance or timeless purpose. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, it's interesting, you say he, um, Caesar is coming out of the Enlightenment, he sees it, that coming out of the Enlightenment in, in kind of a dialectical way, though, because, he sees the, the early historicists in the 18th century as thinking of themselves as being in reaction um, to Enlightenment excesses, especially to the French Revolution. So a lot of the German historians at the time and the, the historicist school in Germany, they really liked Edmund Burke um, and Burke's critique of the French Revolution. But Strauss shows that, in fact, they end up... Uh, serving what they were trying to oppose that the the enlightenment rejection of of classical philosophy and of basing uh political philosophy especially on eternal and uh on the eternal and the unchanging so the platonic view that you have to look towards what is eternal and unchanging and then try to conform uh the the sublunary world as much as possible to that which the Enlightenment thinkers rejected, that is intensified by the historicists. Because the Enlightenment, the, like the mainstream Enlightenment thinkers, uh, the you know, Tom Paines of this world and the rights of man people, they end up, although they, they want to reject in a way the appeal to the eternal, they do end up, uh, they do still sort of appeal to uh, universal unchanging truths they're just sort of more boring kinds of truths like you know the the rights of the self-evident rights of man and so on uh whereas the historicists i mean with burke burke sees that as a danger because you know it's there's this revolutionary uh potential anytime you try to judge the current social order according to abstract principles and sort of developing from that burkean critique the german historicists then end up in a much more radical rejection of any appeal to eternal truth. Uh, and it, finally, they end in a kind of relativism where there is, no, there is nothing that's really true. 
there's just you know different opinions at different times and an Athenian will think one way, you know, at the time of Aristotle, and a German in the 19th century will think another way, but there's no real adjudicating between them. Right, and in that, Strauss finds uh, he finds historicism, of course, be self-contradictory insofar as historicism maintains, or at least this form of historicism maintains, that all of human thought is historically contingent. There is no transcendent truth that uh, crosses over historical ages and periods. And yet historicism itself is, of course, making a transcendent claim, right? That all thought is historically contingent. Right, right. And so Strauss is, you know, on a certain level, Strauss dismisses this and says, well, look, it's self-contradictory. However, and I think this is really important to, to get out of a close reading of Strauss, is that he understands that historicism has morphed and it's, it's become more, um, more radicalized. He never mentions Heidegger, but I think Heidegger does lurk behind the historicism chapter in... Um, natural right in history. And so what Strauss instead shows is that historicism gets past this sort of paradox, or at least um, exempts itself from this paradox by saying, look, it's not our, you know, we've reached an absolute moment in history where we understand that all human thought is historically contingent. You can't lay the blame upon us, or in other words, you can't lay the blame upon Heidegger for being self-contradictory. He's just simply uh, expressing reality yeah. as, right. as, as it is. And so, <laughs> So for Strauss, you know, he sees, he sees the radical historicism or the existential historicism of Heidegger as being far more uh, problematic for the project of getting, you know, back behind historicism and trying to actually um, re reacquaint ourselves with, with natural right. And that's why he calls for this return to the ancients, because we had, because for Strauss, in order to really recapture philosophy, recapture uh, an understanding of natural right, we can't depend on the current age. We have to go back and look to what Plato and Aristotle and so forth taught, which again is somewhat of an irony because on a certain level, Strauss is like, no, history history has become a problematic thing, but yet that's that's ultimately the refuge he, uh, he looks for. Yeah, but a different kind of history than when you, uh, instead of looking at Plato and Aristotle as creatures of their age and saying, oh, you know, as you were saying before with the natural slave, you could say, well, you know, Aristotle thought like this because he was an upper class Athenian um, and, you know, his it's ideological superstructure that's, you know, just comes out of the, the sort of economic uh, infrastructure of Athenian society at the time and so on. But Strauss's, that would be sort of an, a historicist way of looking at the ancient philosophers. Um, with a Marxist tinge, obviously, but um, the way Strauss will look at the the ancient philosophers is is really to understand uh, what is what is the perennial question that they're addressing here, and what are their arguments? What are the arguments that they give for their answer to this perennial question? Right, absolutely, and. You know, this is where, you know, things become more and more contentious, I think, in Strauss studies, because, of course, one thing that Strauss will propose to sort of uh, bolster his thesis that, you know, prior to the modern age, prior to the advent of historicism, there's a, um, you know, there's a transcendent teaching or sort of a universal conversation amongst philosophers is when he proposes the esoteric, exoteric distinction. In other words, saying that if you go back and read, you know, the medieval Islamic philosophers or, or Jewish philosophers like Maimonides, um, they might be speaking in a different quote-unquote lingo uh, than Plato and Aristotle, but ultimately they're having the same conversation. 
that you know Maimonides might dress up a work like uh, the Guide to the to the Perplexed in some biblical language here and there. But really, what Maimonides is doing at the end of the day is he's being a Platonist who's simply trying to disguise his thoughts from the common prejudices of his time. In other words, he can't you know he can't come out and call himself a, a hardcore Platonist because obviously that would con that would conflict with the Judaism he he, he uh, purports to uh, uphold and it would cause disruptions in society and so forth and that's why Strauss is you know at strains to sort of make these arguments that no you know Maimonides might seem like an orthodox Jew but at the end of the day he's a Platonist and perhaps even more, more controversially an, an atheist in hiding yeah that I mean that maybe let's go straight to that um question of the atheist in hiding because one of our co contributors at the Josias Jeffrey Bond has written a few things for us. He uh, he studied under students of Strauss at Kenyon College and then at the University of Chicago, and um, his understanding of their teaching was that they thought it is salutary to believe in or to it is salutary to think that there is such a thing as natural right, and that if you don't think there's that things are right and wrong intrinsically, then ultimately there's no reason for anything. You just have to be a nihilist. And it's more salutary to, to think there's natural right than to be a nihilist. But according to Jeffrey Bond, what these people really thought, their esoteric teaching was that actually the nihilists are right. There's no meaning to anything. Uh, reality is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Um, and but this is a truth that's not salutary so only the the uh only the the the, the philosophers who have you know uh shown themselves worthy to be admitted to the esoteric knowledge know about this <laughs> right and, and then publicly they should try to get people to believe that things are right or wrong naturally right and that's you know i mean that's obviously a, a contentious issue i mean i think there's a there's probably an argument to be made that some of Strauss's students certainly thought that way. Again, Alan Bloom is probably the, the most popular example of that. But I mean, again, on the other hand, you have people like Harry Jaffa who would take, would take the exact opposite point of view on that matter. And then, of course, you know, we shouldn't probably leave to the side completely the fact that Strauss did have a contingency of uh, or a contingent of Catholic students. Uh, Father Ernest Fortin, for example, yes, yes. Uh, Father James Schall, um, probably are the two well, most well-known Catholic students of Strauss. And actually, yes. I'd, um, I don't want to get too far afield here, but I mean, Strauss has a very interesting relationship to the Catholic tradition, or maybe I should say the tradition of Neotomism, because if you go back and you look at some of Strauss's uh, lectures and essays from the 1930s and 40s, he, he does pay salutary compliments to Neotomism as being um, you know, a form of getting back behind the assumptions of historicism and the assumptions of modernity. And strangely enough, that pretty much disappears once Natural Right and History is published. He has his brief critique of Aquinas, and then Catholicism pretty much falls off his radar um, altogether. And I, you know, I've heard different theories of this. One theory is, is that Strauss may have thought there's something salutary about Neotomism, but then thought that Thomism like, decayed or fell into... Um, I say, maybe I shouldn't say decayed, but um, you know, there's... there's well-established lore that Strauss was very unimpressed with uh, Jacques Maritain, and um, who also gave Walgreen lectures, I think, after Strauss. And yeah. from that point forward, Strauss really wanted nothing to do with Neotomism or Maritain's project, um, but he didn't want to kind of come out and attack it outright, but he sort of 
you know, silently uh, dropped it altogether. Um, I did put real quickly, um, I, I, I thought this was a pretty interesting quote I found in Strauss's, I think it's a 1941 lecture on historicism he gave at the uh, New School for Social Research in uh, uh, New York. And I mean, it's one of those little provocative Strauss quotes that maybe he doesn't yeah. mean a whole lot by it, but I, I still like it. I'll just quote it here. Uh, quote, the success of neotomism is a byword. But neotomism is merely the most popular form of a much broader trend whose most powerful and most profound representative was and still is the unknown Nietzsche, which I think is, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's, he's equating, you know, he, I, I think he's, you know, on a certain level, he sees in Nietzsche and in neotomism, uh, you know, a, an attempt to get back behind modernity to some extent, um, Obviously, neither of those camps would recognize it in each other, but, you know, I don't know if he'd said it to get a laugh or, or what, what his thinking was, but, um, yeah, it, it is also, it's interesting, too, because actually in the introduction to natural right in history, he does pay, a, you know, a nod to Catholic thought, saying that natural right is still, you know, taken seriously by Catholics today, but it's really Catholics and Catholics alone who are taking it seriously, but then he just sort of moves beyond, and, and as far as I can tell, he never really addresses the question ever again, never really engages with Catholic thought after, after that point. Yeah. It's a pity. There's, uh, in the introduction, he mentions the, the Thomists and he, but he mentions a particular kind of Thomist. There's, um, I think there's the, actually an Austrian Thomas Katrain is cited somewhere. Um, Maybe not natural right in history, but anyways, he, in natural right in history, in the introduction, he talks about. This is a quote that we actually read on the podcast a couple episodes ago, in, when we were talking about nature, um, and he talks about how it seems like uh, the teleological view of nature has been refuted by modern cosmology. It seems, um, and then he says. The position which the modern followers of Thomas Aquinas are forced to take presupposes a break with the comprehensive view of Aristotle as well as that of Thomas Aquinas himself, namely that they accept a dualism between a non-teleological natural science and a teleological science of man. And that it's a great pity that he sees that as, uh, as typical of, of contemporary Thomas, because, I mean, there were Thomas at the time who had that position. But to my mind, the most interesting ones didn't. And the interesting thing about Ernest Fortin, Father Fortin, whom you mentioned a moment ago, he actually, um, before he uh, started studying Strauss, he went to the University of Laval in Quebec and studied under Charles de Koenig, who uh, was a, a Thomist who was very much concerned with recovering a teleological view of nature. So Father Fortin's work is very interesting because he brings together that kind of Thomism with, with uh, Straussian thought. Yeah, I, I'm actually, my brain is not f firing here, but there was the, um, who who's the Thomist? I think he translated um, parts of the Summa and, and collected works of, uh, of Aquinas into English. He was, he was associated with Notre Dame, and his last name begins with a P. Uh, uh, Ralph McInerney? No, 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 it's, it's not him. Um, it'll come to me. But anyways, uh, if, right. you get, if you go back, I think it's um, the, the collected book, What is Political Philosophy? There's a number of Strauss's book reviews in various journals, I think a pendant oh, okay, in the back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he does review, um, 
it's like a two volume set of like excerpts from from uh, Thomas Aquinas and he goes through oh Pegasus yes yes Pegasus uh, yeah. and yeah he, he, though he expresses that exact thought he I think Pegasus is the kind of Thomist he completely disapproves of because he's yeah. like he's like Aquinas would never say he he really uses that book review to critique the Pegasus introduction I think to that set and he's just like basically the Thomism that he's trying to express in the introduction is not a Thomism that Thomas Aquinas himself would have recognized or approved of and therefore you know there's something there's something flawed here and it, you know it's interesting though too it's just to stay on Aquinas and Strauss's sort of you know there's not a whole lot of detailed um writings by Strauss on Aquinas but it's you know on a certain level you see a deep appreciation of Aquinas in Strauss insofar far as that you know he's impressed by Aquinas's ability to read Aristotle and try to read Aristotle as Aristotle understood himself um but then at a certain other level too, Strauss kind of disapproves of what Aquinas is doing because, you know, Strauss was also at pains to uphold the distinction between Athens and Jerusalem, philosophy and theology, you know, uh, you know, re revealed religion and philosophy. And so for Strauss, for someone like Aquinas, who really tries to take philosophy and use it as the, you know, in the service of theology, for Strauss that was a big no-no. You know, that was something you couldn't do because. If you accepted revelation, again, this is according to Strauss's thinking, if you accepted re revelation, then you reject philosophy and you can't conflate the two together. And I think that's where a certain disapproval of Aquinas and his you know, later Catholic heirs uh, comes into Strauss's thinking. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely the main, his main objection to, to Thomas. is that I mean, he's, he's kind of this alternative between a philosophical way of life where... Um, you really see the highest faculty of man as being reason, and you see the the highest uh, activity of man as being the the rational search for reason. Um, he sees that as being uh, one one choice of life, as it were, and then and revelation, where you see a kind of happiness as depending on participation in someone else's knowledge, namely in, in God's knowledge obedience to the authority of God rather than uh, dependence on, on one's own faculty of reason as being finally irreconcilable with the philosophical way of life. You have to choose one or the other, according to him. Yeah, um, well, Strauss, I mean, again, whether he held it you know, absolutely true, I mean, if you look at, again, he doesn't have many writings on Christianity per se, but when you do look at them, especially the early Strauss in the 1920s and 30s, he really takes a sort of... Um, I would almost say like a, a Barthian view of God, right? For, for, for even for Christians, sort of taking it as, as normative that Christians look at God as sort of a, an absolute other who's separated, you know, from, from us, from the world, and that, uh, you know, natural theology is something that uh, it, it's merely, you know, window dressing, and there really is no natural theology. That really to, to embrace revelation is to basically be a, a, a fideist, and to, and to not um, you know engage in like what Aquinas would do right like the five proofs for the existence of God, or something like that. Strauss would com would completely disapprove of, but you know if you if your belief in God is a you know a, an act of will or a leap of faith in a Kierkegaardian sense, uh, that's yeah. fine. And Strauss can understand that, but but any sort of attempt <laughs> to uh, you know naturally reason to the existence of God, that's something that Strauss uh, again quietly but definitely disapproves of. But another objection to to Thomas that he has, which um, I mean, you were also um, 
alluding to is that he sees the the kind of fixity um, and determination that uh, nat- that natural law as opposed to natural right gives you um, as provoking a reaction. So in a way, he sees modern philosophy as in part a reaction against um, a, a lack of elasticity in, in Christian accounts of, of natural law. That So he would see, uh, at least in um, Plato and Aristotle, he would say they see there's a natural hierarchy of ends. So there's a natural right and wrong, and there's natural that you can understand what is good according to nature, not just according to opinion or custom. Um, but that has to be determined then for a particular society by prudence. So you have you have a certain uh, structure to reality, um, a certain end of human life that's given by nature, but there's a, a huge latitude for the legislator to uh, fit the laws of a particular city um, to that, to those general principles of right. And he sees St. Thomas. And I think here he's maybe not such a good reader of St. Thomas as uh, being one of the Christian thinkers who in a way destroys that elasticity by having a two, uh, by determining natural right into a natural law that is evident to, um, syndesis, the syndesis being the the natural knowledge of of uh, moral principles, that become so determinate that there's no wiggle room for the legislator, and that then there's this kind of natural reaction in European, European politics that leads to modern philosophy. Right, absolutely, and I and I think for you know for Strauss again, some of his defenders would say like, look, he wasn't really critiquing Thomas as hard as it comes across in natural right and history. What he was probably what he was doing allegedly uh, was trying to distance himself from the kind of Thomism that he saw in Maritain and others, and that was kind of his definitive way to get around it. And he wasn't going to speak on it anymore. And again, I mean, I, I won't, I won't wed myself to this view, but I'm pretty positive Aquinas never gets mentioned again in Strauss's works after Natural Right and History is published. That's really interesting. So um, maybe let's let's turn back to the main argument of the text. Um, so he, as you say, he he argues that um, historicism is is kind of self contradictory, um, but there's another uh, and related reason for rejecting natural right that he brings up, and that is positivism. What what does he mean by positivism? Well, again, that's something else, too. If you read over Strauss, he <laughs> kind of floats back and forth on his definition. But, I mean, the, the type of positivism that he's really uh, going after, especially in Chapter 2 of, of the book where he critiques Max Weber, um, you know, he's really trying to attack this notion, uh, well, this notion of the social sciences, that the social sciences has devolved into a, a study of is but not ought, right? And, and he really starts to critique the, the, what's referred to as the fact-value distinction, in other yeah. words, this idea that you know sociology, for instance, well, you know they they can only tell you about facts about the world as it is. Uh, we can't uh, articulate, we can't make value judgments. And it's actually, even though Strauss never mentions it in his work, um, it's interesting that actually one of the biggest proponents of the fact value distinction 
uh, in the 20th century is Ludwig von Mises and the whole Austrian school of economics. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, and so like the whole idea of praxeology, you know, is just the study of is and, and not the study of ought, which again is ironic because, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, Austrian economists tend to be the biggest ought uh, <laughs> proclaimers, on the, you know, out there. But um, and actually, I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a whole other study. But I mean, that's also an argument that's made of why, like Murray Rothbard, for instance, you know, starts to appeal to a, I would call it, a very degraded form of natural right or natural law to sort of bolster the idea of a libertarian society because economics, at least in the Misian sense, uh, can't supply the the ought for the creation of a libertarian order. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, Max Weber was was a tremendously impressive figure, and I think that as a as a schoolboy or a teenager or whatever, Strauss was kind of impressed by him. But then uh, Heidegger was able to cure him of his Weberianism, and then <laughs> right, and then he's able to really. I mean, that second chapter of Natural Right and History is so delicious because he just there's not much left of Weber when, he, when Strauss gets through with him. Right. Well, he really, yeah, he really makes fun of him and the whole project. I mean, there's that great line about, you know, was it like, like any, basically saying like any sociologist or whatever, you know, they have value, implicit value judgments because if you're going to write a sociology of art, you're not going to write the sociology of trash, right? You have to make a distinction right. between these two things or even the discussion of Calvin, right? So that Weber can make cer certain judgments on, you know, vulgar forms of Calvinism. Well, that would imply like, you know, that you that you can distinguish between you know what's a high version of Calvinism as opposed to a low version of Calvinism, and Strauss is sort of saying that you know regardless of whatever Weber says about the fact value distinction, Weber really has his own value judgments and he issues them all the time. He just might not be as honest or explicit about it as he should be. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So I mean, this is that seems like that's the main the main refutation of positivism is that it's impossible not to make value judgments. But then um, another point that comes out, uh, and he mentions this in, in the, those lectures on the Mino that I was listening to as well, that the, the, the prestige of positivism comes from the prestige of um, modern natural science, which abstracts in a way from the good uh, and the end of things and, and looks just at... Uh, the functioning of things apart from the question of the good, looking at um, measurable correlations between quantities. Um, but that form of science is itself dependent on a pre-scientific knowledge of the world that, uh, that obviously can't abstract from uh, values. And in those lectures on the Mino, he gives this wonderful example. He says, uh, if a sociology department or a, a political science department sends you out to do empirical research, right? So say you're, you're, you're uh, sent out to ask people's opinions on something. This is, counts as, as empirical research in, in a sociology department, right? They'll tell you all kinds of things about the proper procedure so that, you know, it'll be objective and scientific and so on. And so you, you should just be able to apply the procedure and then get the measurable result. But then he points out one thing that they're not going to explain to you is um, how to tell whether it's a human being that you're talking to when you're doing this survey. You know, How do you know that 
you're not talking to a lamppost or a dog, you know? <laughs> and he says, well, it's very unlikely that there'll be any questioning in your mind about this. It's, you, you know by a very certain kind of knowledge, you know, this is a human being. It's, it's very reliable, but it's not, uh, it's not uh, scientific knowledge in the, sense, in the modern sense of a measurable relation of quantities. You know this by pre-scientific knowledge. Uh, upon which all scientific knowledge ultimately depends. Right, absolutely. And I think, um, I believe it's one of Strauss's um, more interesting and impenetrable students, uh, Seth Benedetti, um, in his, there's a collection of his uh, just kind of casual talks with some of his students, and he discusses Strauss's, you know, critique of science and, and, and even modern science itself, and he points out that, you know, the scientific method, which of course is held up as being the only means to uh, true knowledge. Um, the scientific method doesn't generate itself. You know, it, it did relied on right. pre pre scientific method uh, assumptions about the world, and so you know, Benardetti and Strauss, I think they both see in this, um, you know, a, a problem. Like, well, why don't we talk about this? Why don't we ask about this? Why don't we um, explore it and think through it? And the problem is, is that there's a sort of dogmatism that was very prevalent in the academy, both in Germany when Strauss was growing up, and certainly he saw it in America. Uh, after he emigrated in the 19, I think it was late 1930s. Um, and again, that gets back to the whole question of, is a lot of Strauss's critique of historicism, is his critique of positivism, you know, less about, you know, destroying Max Weber, less about overcoming Heidegger, and more about just inspiring his own students, you know, again, as a teacher at the University of Chicago, to really take seriously what, you know, what the ancients had to say, and to really get back behind modern assumptions. And maybe, you know, Strauss did leave open the possibility that, that you know, maybe, uh, how should I put it, maybe existential historicism is correct. Maybe Heidegger had it right. But we're not going to know that. We can't come to that conclusion just by casually accepting the dominant view that, you know, Heidegger is the greatest philosopher of all time or that, you know, existential historicism has simply been revealed to us uh, somehow in the, in the course of an absolute moment of history. We really have to think through the problems, and that's what Strauss is really trying to inspire his students to do. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a wonderful image he uses at, in some, I think it's in Persecution and the Art of Writing, of a, a hole under the cave. So you have you have the Platonic cave, which is um, sort of the ordinary sense experience, and to to be liberated from the cave would mean to ascend to a knowledge of the eternal. Um, but what uh, modern science has bequeathed to us are habits of thoughts that are that um, that make it not only more difficult to get out of the cave, but even make it difficult to see the images of the cave. That is to take ordinary sense experience seriously. So it's it's a wonderful image because it's so uh, contrary to the dominant view of science as being you know this great flaming torch of enlightenment. So it's no, it's the hole under the cave that's right. preventing people from even seeing the images in the cave, let alone ascending to the to the eternal truths. Right, and, and, and that give, I mean that that gets right to the Straussian project too. I think of of trying to reclaim you know what Strauss would refer to as a natural understanding of the world, um, and Strauss has a. You know, had a very deep appreciation. You mentioned uh, Jacob Klein earlier. He had a deep yeah. appreciation of Klein's book on uh, Greek mathematics, which is a great book, which I think everybody yeah. should read. And one thing that Strauss saw in that book was an attempt to get back behind concepts, right? So, like, con you know, for Strauss in his thinking, you know, 
we live in this world with, with all these intellectual or philosophical concepts and that the kind of conceptual uh, language that we use actually blurs over and actually serves as a barrier to a more natural understanding of the world. And you know, Strauss always has that quote, I think it's, it's, it's quoted fairly often, but I, I think there's something to it where he says, you know, there's no doubt that modern man you know, knows more than, than any ancient, right? That, that even a, a high school biology student knows more about biology than Aristotle, but that what Aristotle knew, what Plato knew, what the ancients knew, they knew it better than we know. And that's what Strauss is really trying to get back to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I want to underline that recommendation of, of Klein's book uh, on Greek mathematical thought, because it, it really makes that point in a profound way, showing how um, there's a, a kind of sedimentization that takes place in concepts where they obscure finally what they're actually based on, which is our contact with the world through our senses and the immediate um, the immediate knowledge that the intellect has of the world that's taken from that direct experience uh, that becomes obscured by these um, by these concepts that that sort of lose meaning in in uh, in the course of overuse so that you think you know something um, but actually you don't know it you just, just have, have you know a string of words Right. And, you know, it's, it's the Strauss-Klein relationship is interesting, too, because in, in some respects, you know, they had very similar uh, projects intellectually. But, you know, in other ways, they had very deep disagreements. And I, again, going back to Strauss's student, uh, Seth Bernadetti, who actually did teach for a time at, at St. John's College, you know, he relates these stories about how Klein would host these lectures on you know, different um, or seminars and different uh, Platonic writings. And then ultimately, when, you know, Klein would build up this beautiful interpretation of the whole dialogue. And then when it get to the end, if someone pointed out there was contradictions in it or, you know, it didn't add up with, with uh, some of Plato's other works, you know, Klein would immediately go, well, you know, that's probably because this work is spurious. So we'll just move on, right? <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> as opposed to, like, for example, like, um, uh, I, I, again, I'm, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong here on my Platonic scholarship, but I believe the Mino, right, is considered... Is that is that not considered a spurious dialogue, or at least it has been by modern historians? Uh, I, it's, I, I thought it was considered, considered an early dialogue. Or, or no, I mean, the, it's possible that some, some people consider it spurious, but I think I'm, oh, mostly... Not, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of the Minos, not the Mino. The, the, um, oh, the Minos. Yeah, oh, I'm thinking, sorry. Um, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's considered spurious. Right, but like Strauss, for instance, he would take the view of, you know, before sort of accepting the... You know, the argument that it's spurious, you know, this is also sort of part of Strauss's uh, pedagogical approach. He would encourage his students, right, read that dialogue, go through it. You know, Strauss actually even wrote a real brief commentary on it. And he would encourage the students to look through it and see how does it build, you know, how does it connect with the rest of Plato's corpus? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it is truly spurious. But you can't truly know that until you understand Plato as a whole. And that's where he would disagree with someone like Klein who might, who might say, well, these dialogues are spurious, but Strauss would probably come back at that and say, well, maybe you're just not understanding Plato correctly, and maybe that's why you're trying to, you know, remove certain dialogues from the corpus just so, you know, in the service of your interpretation, but Strauss would certainly disapprove of doing that. Yeah, yeah. Klein was, Klein was a Russian, too, and he has more of a Russian character. Strauss is very German, very precise about everything, and uh, Klein has more sort of happy-go-lucky 
approach to life. It's like, yeah, whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, that was certainly like, yeah, that was certainly evident in their character and such. And uh, again, I, I, if you've never read it, it's called um, Encounters and Reflections by Seth Benedetti. And it's uh, a, a very short book, but he has, you know, a number of discussions about, the first half is really about his life as a student at University of Chicago and then all the places he went and taught before he finally settled at uh, NYU, but just the different personalities he ran into and sort of his discussions of his time at St. John's and how I think his critique of St. John's was that uh, the only thing St. John's ever wanted to do is, is make you believe that Dante wrote in Greek. In other words, that all, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he, and, and basically, um, it's actually also a fairly amusing story, uh, you know, for all his eccentricities and obscurities, uh, Seth Bernadetti was considered just a master of the Greek language and was so sort of obsessed with it that he was, you know, he would think in it. He would think in Greek and he would write in Greek and then, you know, later uh, transcribe his stuff. But um, there's a story uh, a friend of mine uh, told me his dad had gone to St. John's, but apparently Bernadetti uh, sat in on movie night and it was Casablanca. And at the end of it, students looked over at him and wondered what he was writing down the whole time. And he goes, well, that was really easy. And they go, well, what was easy? And he goes, oh, the dialogue. I translated it all into Attic Greek. And he showed it to him. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's awesome. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Let's um, turn now a little bit to, to Strauss's, uh, I mean, we're running out of time, but I want to talk a little bit about the, the positive presentation of classic natural right and natural right in history. Um, and maybe one, he uh, he gives kind of a, a an account of the the origin of the idea of natural right, and then uh, then an account of a kind of synthetic account taking together um, elements from various thinkers to give a, a kind of a general account of some of the teaching of natural right, particularly with respect to politics, which obviously is the ancients consider that to be the highest um, moral science. Um, one, maybe one point that we can pick out to discuss is uh, the idea of um, the polity. And this, I mean, this ties back to what it is. What is a, a, a politeia? This ties back to um, the problem of historicism there's uh, R.G. Collingwood, the um, the English philosopher, who was in in the English speaking world. He was a channel for a lot of German historicist thought. He uh, he says if you read modern commentators on on Plato, and by modern he meant nineteenth century Victorian commentators, sort of naive um, commentators. They they think that Plato is talking about the same thing that they were talking about. Um, it's just, so they, they read politeia in the Greek and they translate it as state in English and they think that Plato's talking about the state and they apply their modern categories to him and then they say well he didn't really have a very good idea of what the state is um, and then Collingwood says this is as though you were to read trireme in the Greek and translate it as steamship and then you know you read what Herodotus says about the the Greek triremes, and you say Herodotus was kind of an idiot. He didn't really know what a steamship is like at all. <laughs> and uh, Strauss, um, it seems like Strauss says there's that superficially that's true. Obviously, there's there's a stupid way of of uh, 
seeing continuity in the history of philosophy and thinking everyone is talking about the same thing. But um, the conclusion shouldn't be Collingwood's conclusion of a kind of absolute historicism where there's no continuity and everyone's just talking about something else. But really, you should try to dig under the, the superficial uh, misunderstandings and, and disagreement at the level of uh, of certain terms and so on, and try to come down to the basic uh, the basic question that um, will always face humankind, and the question of of the politeia of the commonwealth uh, of the common life of human beings is something that will present itself to any thinker, whether he's a, a Victorian um, or an Athenian. Let me read a, one little quote from, from Natural Right in History here. In order to reach his highest stature, man must live in the best kind of society, in the kind of society that is most conducive to human excellence. The classics call the best society the best politeia, by this expression, they indicated, first of all, that it is order that in order to be good, society must be civil or political society, a society in which there exists government of men and not merely administration of things. Politeia is ordinarily translated by constitution, but when using the term constitution in a political context, modern men almost inevitably mean a legal phenomenon, something like the fundamental law of the land, and not something like the constitution of the body or of the soul. Yet politeia is not a legal phenomenon. The classics used politeia in contradistinction to laws. The politeia is more fundamental than any laws. It is the source of all laws. The politeia is rather the factual distribution of power within the community than what constitutional law stipulates in regard to political power. And then a little bit later on, he says, um, the American Constitution is not the same thing as the American way of life. Politeia means the way of life of a society rather than its constitution in the modern sense. Yet it is no accident that the unsatisfactory translation constitution is generally preferred to the translation way of life of a society. When speaking of constitution, we think of government. We do not necessarily think of government when speaking when of the way of life of a community. When speaking of politeia, the classics thought of the way of life of a community as essentially determined by its form of government. We shall translate politeia by regime. Part of what he's saying there is, is sort of going back to the, the argument of the ancients that to reach the end of human life, you need a political society. But part of what he's doing there as well is showing that modern terms, um, in a way, although, although the, these, the, the question of what is the good life for man is perennial, and everyone has to, to uh, ask this question, there's a way in which modern terms of debate obscure the question, make it more difficult to answer. So the way of life, the historicist would talk about culture, you know, Athenian culture. Those, well, at least sort of the um, vulgar historicists that Strauss encounters in the classroom would talk about Athenian culture. And this obscures the fact that um, what Athenian culture is, is uh, a certain common pursuit of the good. And that common pursuit of the good has a, a particular form, 
um, there's a certain distribution of powers that are necessary for pursuing the good. Um, but culture is not sort of some other reality apart from human political life. It's a way of talking about politics without saying the word politics. Right, right. I, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, that's a really good summation of where, where Strauss is coming from. And I think it's also, you know, gets to, it reminds me a little bit um, of what Strauss would also say as part of his, um, how should I put it? Well, I'll, I'll back up a second here. One, I think, gift that Strauss's students and certainly those who have been influenced by Strauss have, have given us is a, a approach to translations that is very literal. Um, they might not be the most beautiful translations, they might not flow very well in English at times, but there's a sort of return to literalism because for Strauss he really wants to you know, get to the thinkers as they understand themselves and to really try to remove as much uh, accretions or barriers of contemporary thought uh, from us and say Aristotle or Plato or even, you know, even pre-Socratics uh, for that matter. And you know you see this too. You see in Alan Bloom's translations of both Plato and Rousseau. Uh, certainly, um, a lot of the uh, uh, translators that come out of like St. John's College and so forth—they're all very literal. Uh, Joe Sachs is probably a really good yeah. example of this. Um, and you know, and it's a way again to try to inspire students to to overcome modern prejudices and really try to look at these thinkers uh, in a new light. And I think one thing that maybe. You know, I, I went to a state school, so I, it might have been a little bit different going to Thomas Aquinas College and so mm -hmm. forth. But I mean, you know, a lot of the prejudices and so forth that Strauss is encountering and trying to overcome, I mean, those are still dominant dogmas in many public universities to this day. And that's why I found Strauss so refreshing when I first encountered him around 2002, 2003, uh, when I was just finishing up my undergrad studies. And Sometimes when I try to talk about Strauss's influence and why he's so important, you know, I'll talk to someone who went to St. John's or I'll talk to someone who went to Thomas Aquinas College. And they'll kind of look at me askance and be like, well, that's, that's all derivative or that's all common sense. And I'm like, well, it's, it's not, though. I mean, it wasn't for, during Strauss's time and it certainly isn't, I think, in a, in a majority of our academies today. I mean, you're probably fortunate to be in an environment where, for example, you know, the ancients were taken seriously, Aquinas was taken seriously and so forth. And that's just not something you you normally experience. And that's why I would encourage people, especially some of our younger listeners out there who may have gone to a state school, may not have gone to a, a private college that was built on, you know, great books programs, uh, to at least read Natural Right and History and at least think through uh, some of what Strauss is saying there about historicism, about positivism, about the need to return to, to natural right and to understand thinkers of the past as they understood themselves. Yes, it might be an ongoing quest. It might be a project that, you know, has a lot of uh, barriers and hurdles and obviously internal disagreements amongst different readers of different thinkers. But at the same time, too, it, it, it is a way to sort of get past these contemporary dogmas, which do tend to, I would argue, uh, stifle our thought and make us intellectually complacent in believing that, you know, we know that all thought is historically contingent or, you know, modern science is the only way to pure and whole knowledge and so forth. Yeah. No, I would definitely... Uh, join you in that recommendation. He's, Strauss is, is really good to, for getting people out of habits of thought um, that they've taken up from, from the, our contemporaries who are so formed by historicism and positivism. Let's, uh, let's end by, by turning to um, 
to the comparison of, of Strauss and McIntyre because McIntyre is another uh, writer whom, uh, who has kind of that effect often on people of helping them to break out of these habits of thought. Um, but uh, the approaches are, seem at least to be very different. Uh, Strauss has this very direct critique of historicism Whereas McIntyre seems, in a way, to adopt historicism in order to to turn it against itself, in a way. So, um, yeah, say something about Strauss and McIntyre. You wrote this post uh, after our, our our McIntyre podcast. Right now, you're putting me on the spot because I forgot what I said at that time. Um, well, I mean, I'll I mean, I'll, I'll start off by saying that first, I'm you know. While I am a Catholic, I'm not a McIntyrean, which might get me uh, in trouble in some circles. But I mean, I just McIntyre is good, but it's not the be-all, end-all. And actually, that's a it's an interesting question you bring up too, because you know, while McIntyre does accept uh, a historicism on a certain level, it's not like he you know uh, encases his thinking in it. He certainly believes that you know there's a value to going back to pre-modern philosophy, and he certainly see an encouragement in McIntyre to take seriously thinkers of the past and not just to write them off as, you know, expressions of their time. And, and here might be an issue where maybe sometimes people overread uh, Strauss's critique of historicism. It's not that Strauss denied the fact that, you know, if you, if you collect together figures like Plato and Thomas More and Maimonides and so forth, Strauss isn't denying the fact that they were certainly influenced by the times in which they lived. They certainly wrote in an idiom of the times in which they lived. They, they certainly used examples, in, uh, you know, that they experienced every day in, in their experience of the world. He's not denying that. I think what he's trying to get a, shake us loose from is that all the thought of Thomas More and Maimonides and Plato and so forth, it, it's not just an expression of a, of a particular prejudice, that while their thinking may have been shaped by their times and may have been shaped by, um, you know, the world in which they lived and the controversies and and conflicts that, that rose around them, that there's a capacity still to philosophize, there's still a capacity to overcome uh, one's place in time and place in history and, and, and the society that they're born into, and, and, and really you know, try to get back to, you know, again, what, what is natural right, and to actually have a you know, centuries or actually millennia-long conversation with other thinkers that preceded you in, in a way that, again, I, I think we can say was exemplified on some levels in the work of Thomas Aquinas when he's reading Aristotle. You know, he's, Thomas Aquinas probably had a very faint knowledge of you know, Athenian society, and you know, if he did have any knowledge of Greek, it was very minimal, but that's not what Aquinas was doing when he read Aristotle. He was trying to read Aristotle as you know, the philosopher, the one who had a teaching that was true, and you know, he would correct Aristotle where Aristotle was wrong, and he would try to harmonize these apparently disparate parts of the Aristotelian corpus. And that's the kind of learning and the kind of thinking that I think Strauss really wanted to his, encourage his students to get back to. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. And I think, I mean, to him, in a way, using words like historical or saying, you know, I have a historical approach to this or history or culture or so on is often a way of, uh, of really obscuring what you're doing. Because when we talk about Athenian culture or something. Um, what we, Athenian culture is really, it's the Athenian way of life, which was um, something that was done by the Athenians. And surely partly, part of it was due to um, customs that they accepted 
without think reflecting too much, but much of it was due to choices on the basis of reflection. So if you say, you know, Aristotle thinks that they're natural slaves because he's an Athenian. In a way, you're not, you're obscuring what's going on rather than explaining it because uh, part of the Athenian acceptance of slavery is due to um, what they thought about it and what people like Aristotle thought about. It. And Aristotle certainly, in the ethics, he certainly considers, and in the politics, objections to slavery um, and, and tries to, to answer those objections. So you have, uh, when, yeah, our, our access to historical periods is largely through these historical documents, which document what people thought, which is part of what uh, caused them to um, act the way they did. But this leads me to another question, which, I mean, one way of, of expressing the difference between Strauss and McIntyre is to say that Strauss is right wing and McIntyre is left wing. Uh, <laughs> the, the, one of the one of your first posts at the Josias was about. Uh, um, I just uh, pulled it up here. Have the principles of the right been discredited? Um, and it was about Strauss's defense of the right in a way. And McIntyre is um, we started out as a Marxist, and he it seems like he puts a lot more. He gives a lot more weight to um, economic conditions, which is typical of the, at least since Marx has been typical of the left, maybe before Marx, it wasn't so typical of left of the left wing, but Marx's oversized influence on the left has mean that the left takes uh, the way in which production is organized in a society as being extremely important and sort of having a in, in the, some leftists, it determines everything. Um, McIntyre doesn't think that, but he does think it has a huge influence on uh, the way people think. Um, it seems like Strauss, in Strauss, that's less the case. What, who's right? Well, no, I, I think that's true. I think, I think, well, certainly, you know, there's a Strauss that has been uncovered in the last 10 to 15 years, which is the young... Strauss of the, you know, the 1920s and 30s, who yeah. very much was a man of the right. And, you know, he has that, I, I quote it in that article that he pulled up, you know, he has that very provocative letter to Carl uh, Loth, you know, where he talks about, you know, we won't crawl to the cross of liberalism. In other words, that just because Nazism has arisen in Germany and just because Nazism has contempt for the Jews and wants to exterminate us or exterminate the Jews, um, that doesn't mean that liberalism is correct. It doesn't mean that that's what we need right. to run to and that... You know, he has that, um, you know, again, it's, it's off debated, but he has that line about, you know, as long as there's still a, a glimmer of a spark in the world of, of the, you know, of the principles of the right, um, you know, we can still appeal to that. And people have argued and said, you know, is he referring to fascist Italy? Is he referring to uh, the United Kingdom? Uh, because at that time, you know, the United Kingdom was still an empire, still an imperial power at that point. Right. Um, and saying that, you know, maybe we should look to you know, an imperial power to, to save us and to spare us. And I think the best argument probably is that he probably was referring to Great Britain, and that would eventually become his home after he leaves Germany. But, I mean, Strauss very much, you know, he, he was a person of the right. He, you know, he, he corresponded with Carl Schmitt. You know, he actually wrote a very uh, profound critique of the second edition of Schmitt's uh, concept of the political, where he 
basically says that ultimately Schmidt is trying to overcome liberalism with liberalism and that Schmidt's not radical enough. And you, know, and you can see even that early writing, I think it's from 1932 or 33, you know, Strauss talks about the need to find a horizon beyond liberalism, but he doesn't really develop that thought. But then in the course of the next two decades, you know, Strauss finds the horizon beyond liberalism to be you know, classical philosophy and, and to get past the, the times in which he lived. And so it's ironic that Strauss is sometimes you know, equated as being a, a, a liberal who, who works strenuously to uphold liberal society and to philosophically defend it, when if you look at the early Strauss and the trajectory of his thoughts, he certainly is very critical of liberalism and, in fact, seemed interested in overcoming it. Yeah. And in, in natural, his, uh, natural right and history, you have, in the part about classical natural right, you have a very powerful defense of aristocracy. Maybe we can end with that. I mean, that's another way of distinguishing McIntyre and Strauss and McIntyre leaning more left in a way is more egalitarian. Um, and he, that's the, the, the aristocratic um, element of Aristotle's thought is the one that, that McIntyre is most critical of. Whereas uh, Strauss, uh, gives us a powerful defense of Aristotle's uh, view of aristocracy as the best regime for human beings. Um, and it seems like he's, his point is that aristocracy enables the highest excellences of human beings to be developed. Um, apart from like a rule of philosopher kings, which is very sort of fortuitous and, and rare, Strauss says the the for the most part the best kind of uh, regime is a mixed regime in which the aristocratic class has the dominant role, and the aristocratic class understood as kind of gentlemen who are have an appreciation of the highest things even if they're not philosophers themselves, they're the only class that's able to appreciate philosophers. If you have a rule of of the the many, um, they won't have any appreciation of the highest things. And so your polity will be impoverished and it won't, in fact, lead to the highest flourishing of human beings. I, I think that's absolutely correct. And, you know, that's also, um, it's worth pointing out, too, is that Strauss, you know, he always talked about preparing the way for philosophy or preparing the way for a return to philosophy. He never really refers to himself as a philosopher. He never, you know, takes it as for granted that we may even live in an era you know, now or even for 500 years where a true philosopher will ever come into being. He's really just trying to, you know, again, allegedly uh, set the pathway for a return to philosophy. And, and certainly, you know, Strauss would probably say that the philosopher has better things to do than run a polity, that the idea of a philosopher king is, is uh, maybe more of a thought project than, than something you want to practically put in reality. And you're right, it's the gentlemen who are supposed to, you know, as part of the aristocracy, Carry, carry out the, uh, the rule of the people rather than the philosopher who's, I guess, busy, you know, pondering whether or not God exists, whatever. <laughs> Strauss, you know, I guess I'll just close on that note, too. I mean, you know, Strauss, you know, I think it's in chapter two of Natural Right and History. Strauss has that very provocative statement where he says that, you know, for philosophy to be the right way of life, it has to comprehend and overcome revealed religion. And Strauss leaves it as an open question whether that's even possible. And the only way that would be possible is if a philosopher could grab knowledge of the whole, right, and 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 to, and to really understand, uh, the you know the whole of being, to use kind of a Heideggerian expression. Um, but he, 
you know, he, he says it's, it's not proven yet that philosophy is, is the highest way of life or the right way of life. And of course, if, if revealed religion is correct, whether it's Judaism, Christianity, Islam, or so forth, then, then the philosophic life clearly is not the highest life. It clearly is not the, the right form of life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you have, in St. Thomas, you have uh, an idea that obviously the highest form of life is not mere natural philosophical contemplation, but it is going to be contemplation of the highest truth. That's going to be eternal beatitude is going to be the beatific vision. So St. Thomas would see a kind of uh, harmony there that Strauss uh, doesn't appear to see. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that's the right way to put it. I think Strauss doesn't care to see it, or if Strauss did see it, it was inconvenient to his, to his own project and yeah. left it to the side. Okay, well, well thank, thank you, you so much. much. I think we will end on that note. Uh, it's been a great fun talking to you. You as well.